Hello and welcome to HIMSCast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock, and I'm joined today by the Healthcare Finance News staff, Managing Editor Susan Morse and Associate Editor Jeff Lagasse, as well as a special guest, Christopher Kearns, Vice President for Executive Insight at Advisory Board. Thanks for joining us today, Christopher. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being here too, Sue and Jeff. Yeah, pleasure. Our topic today is about hospitals and how they're coping financially with the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, We're going to talk about some hospitals that have had to shut down, to do layoffs, to do furloughs. We're going to talk about how the government has been intervening to help. And we're going to talk a little bit about what happens next as we try to start reopening the country. So why don't you set this up for us a little bit? Uh, Sure. Well, first of all, I've been enjoying listening to Christopher Kearns give his go-to webcasts on Thursday. They're a 45-minute look at what's going on with hospitals and how they've been affected by COVID-19. And I was especially intrigued by one week, Christopher, where you talked about hospitals are closing, they're furloughing staff, they're reducing physician salaries. And all of this was done, I believe, before the CARES Act funding got to hospitals. Now they've gotten $30 billion. Now an extra $20 billion should be arriving tomorrow, Friday. And then the House is set to pass another $484 billion bill that will include money for hospitals. And yet I'm still hearing about hospitals having to make cuts and do all kinds of measures. So I'm wondering what is happening here. Is there not enough money? Is it not getting to them in time? Or I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of that. It's really hard to overstate how dire the financial situation is for hospitals and health systems right now. And it's mostly due to the cancellation of elective procedures, which for most organizations, it's going to be about 51% of their overall revenue. So you have to think that over the course of two months, 51% of their revenue has just not come in at all. And it's not going to come back all that quickly. So that's providing a great deal of cash flow challenges for hospitals who in many cases have fewer than 30 days of cash, even if there are large health systems who have more than 180 days of cash. So they're not going to have the same levels of cash reserves as you might expect uh, based on a lot of the reports that you've heard in the past. Um, Yes, I know the American Hospital Association a few weeks ago held, um, I think it was on a Saturday morning, talked to the CEOs of three hospitals, and each said they were two weeks away from not being able to meet payroll. Is, Is the CARES Act funding helping? I mean, I know it has to help, but is it enough? Are they, is this going to be able to tide hospitals over for a little bit, or are they still going to face financial difficulties even when they get the rest of this money? Well, the CARES Act is certainly going to help. The the question is speed over need. So the first tranche of of healthcare uh, spending that went out the door via the CARES Act was mostly based on fee-for-service revenue from Medicare. And that had the virtue of speed. It was relatively easy to calculate, and it could get out the door quickly. But defining need is a little bit more difficult because on the one hand, you could define need as orgs that have had the greatest amount of COVID surge, but at the same time, they'll also be getting COVID-related revenues. You could define need as those who deferred the greatest amount of revenue, that they depend on elective procedures. Well, yes, but you can also say that those orgs 
tend to have the greatest amount of cash flow to begin with. And then third, you could say that need is just based on the safety net, but not all hospitals that are experiencing a surge are safety net hospitals. So you have to balance all three of those. And the next tranches of CARES Act funding and second stimulus funding are going to be balancing those three different priorities, safety net versus financial distress versus uh, COVID-19 burden. You mentioned COVID-19 revenues. Tell us a little more about that. I mean, I'm sure not everyone who gets stricken with the disease is going to be able to pay. I'm sure hospitals don't want to make COVID treatment, you know, a, an unnecessarily expensive. Um, how does that piece of it fit in? Well, it's important to remember that there's not necessarily a line item that they can just charge to Medicare or to health plans that will say COVID-19, and then there is a specific charge that comes back. It's a variety of different conditions that COVID-19 causes. So we were able to estimate what the likelihood of payment would be based on different infection rates in different markets. And for a moderate scenario, a thousand bed system could expect $31 million over the course of three months to come in via COVID revenue, whereas an area that has had a massive surge could see up to $150 million of revenue that comes in. And it's really just based on the number of people who come in with the infection, the number of, of people who come in with complications, and the overall demographics of the population that lead to more or less severity. So there's a wide range of revenue that could come in related to COVID, but only those that see the highest surges and are able to capture all of the patients who come in via that surge are likely to see any significant offset of the losses that they're experiencing in the short term. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting, Christopher. When you talk about the 31 million in COVID-19 revenue, can you compare that with the losses from the elective procedures? What and, and how much they would be getting in revenue if they could continue with those? I don't know if you have those figures. I mentioned that for about a thousand bed system, we modeled out a little over $30 million in COVID revenue in a moderate infection scenario. The amount of revenue that same system would likely lose from electives, and this is just based on median payer mix and median characteristics just about across the board, is about $140 million that they're losing out on for inpatient outpatient procedures. Now that varies quite a bit from organization, but overall that's accounting for about 51% of their total revenue over that same period of time. So obviously not enough to make up for the loss of that elective revenue. And uh, yeah, any idea, you know, how long it will take for them to bounce back? And I believe that was the focus of your discussion today. Yeah, so when we look at the ability for providers to get that revenue back, we have to think about a couple of different things. One, what is the demand likely to look like? So how much of that demand that's pent up will still be there once the hospitals reopen? And then second, you have to think about what's the supply. So what ability do hospitals and health systems have to accommodate all this pent up demand? Do they have additional supply waiting in the wings that they can activate to capture all that demand? So we estimated that for that organization that I just mentioned, that model fictitious org, mm -hmm. a thousand beds, if they, did not see any reduction in pent-up demand 
and they didn't increase their supply at all, it would still take them about 23 weeks to capture all of that pent up demand. So hospitals are likely to be trying to capture as much of that pent up demand as possible through the end of 2020 at the very least. And who knows when they can start doing this again, too. There's, um, I don't know what hospitals are saying for when they can start taking these elective surgeries again, but I imagine um, that's at least another month out. I don't really know exactly how long it's going to be before hospitals ramp up to full capacity again, mm-hmm. but the general consensus that I've been hearing is that when hospitals are given the green light to start reopening, they would like to reopen 20% at a time. So 20% for two weeks, another 20% for two weeks, and so on and so forth. That seems to be the cadence that most hospital and health system leaders have been telling me, but that's going to have a great deal of variation. It's going to be very difficult to turn the lights on, expect all the demand to come back all at once for a couple of reasons. One, there are all the different safety concerns to ensure that we have adequate testing for new cases that are coming into the hospital. There's also the fact that there's going to be a lot of reticence among patients to come back to the hospital, given their fears of contracting the virus themselves. So it's going to take a while for demand, not just to come back organically, but for hospitals to ramp it up and ensure that they've got sufficient testing capacity and staffing capacity. With the way things are going, with uh, a plateau happening in some cities like New York, though I hear Boston is right in the middle of the surge right now, is are are you hearing from hospitals? Are they saying, okay, we think we can, we're doing okay now. We've got the CARES Act funding. We're getting this second round of funding. Or are they still saying, look, we're in a dire situation. We're not going to be able to make it. We're not going to be able to keep our doors open, is what I was hearing last month from uh, the American Hospital Association. There's still a great deal of worry, for sure, among hospital and health system leaders about their short-term cash flow. Many have been able to secure short-term cash flow from their lenders and will be able to weather this crisis just fine. Others are in a little bit dicier of a situation. I think what a lot of health system leaders are looking for is a sustained decline in new admissions over a 14-day period. That'll start giving them the confidence that they can start reopening to certain levels of electives. Does advisory board give any recommendations on to hospitals on this? Well, what we have done is uh, provide a set of criteria that you're going to want to look at, and it's going to vary from, from org to org. And providing that guidance is a little bit tricky because obviously all of this is going to be subject to local regulations. But if you like, I can walk you through what are the things that a health system leader is going to look for before uh, he or she can reopen their facility. Going to walk you through that? Well, yes, and I'm thinking of of payroll as part of that. What do they need to to meet their payroll to to uh, you know within the next few weeks? Are they are they now making that? Are they going to have to get back if they're laying off staff? Will they need to ramp up staff to uh, take care of these elective procedures? I'm sorry. I'm think I'm probably getting ahead of what you were going to say. So please do. The order of operations really matters here, and you're getting at something important, which is ensuring that we have a cost-effective way of being able to reopen, because a lot of hospitals are seeing significantly reduced cash flow. They can't just ramp up because that will also entail a lot of short-term cost. So what a lot of hospitals are planning on doing as they reopen is to prioritize three different things. First, outpatient procedures. 
which have higher throughput. So they want to look at procedures that can go through the hospital quickly. They also want to look at those that require the fewest number of people in the room and require the fewest levels of PPE. So essentially, what are the low cost, high throughput outpatient services that they can push through the organization quickly that will help them ramp back up their cash flow and prepare for more intensive treatments? Does that make sense? Yes, very much. Um, it sounds like when you said 20%, they need, they know they need to go slowly. They just can't ramp up to 100% all at once. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is obviously the reticence among patients, but two is just they need to be able to pay the staff who are going to be engaging in these procedures. And they just don't have adequate cash flow to be able to reopen 200% level capacity right away in many cases. I want to pull Jeff in. Um, Jeff, you were, Jeff, you wrote a story just the other day about a Kaufman Hall report um, that laid out a little bit how dire the straits are for some hospitals. And I was wondering if you uh, had any insights from that report to add in here. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, Jonah, I've got the numbers uh, right here in front of me, and I think dire is definitely the uh, the accurate word <laughs> to describe the scenario, unfortunately. Um, you know, and again, you know, it falls back to what Christopher was talking about with the elective procedures, uh, you know, driving all of this revenue loss. Um, operating margins, um, this is uh, EBITDA margins now, well, more than 100% from February to March, uh, according to these numbers, and that's a full 13 percentage point drop uh, relative to last year. And uh, compared to most months, I mean, that's just a, a huge variation. I mean, you typically just don't see that. Um, operating a bit in a margin uh, was up uh, just percent uh, in March of last year, uh, for example, and down 1% uh, February of this year. Those are the kinds of numbers that you're used to seeing. So, I mean, obviously, this is having a a huge, huge impact. Um, you're also seeing a lot of um, uh, pretty chilling numbers uh, when you look at things like uh, operating room minutes. Uh, they're down 20% uh, year over year. Uh, emergency department visits uh, down 15% over that same span. Um, median hospital occupancy, uh, 53% uh, for the month. So, you know, if that can provide a little bit of uh, context to the situation that we're talking about, I mean, you're looking at, uh, you know, like you said, a very dire situation. Christopher, I wanted to ask about whether there are additional revenue models that um, that might help to keep these hospitals afloat. I mean, is telemedicine a factor here if they're able to pr provide services via their doctors that don't require people to come into the hospital? Uh, is reimbursement too much of a limiter on that being a, a real revenue source? Telemedicine is certainly getting a big push right now. And when we look at regulatory relaxation, a lot of that has come from CMS that is providing reimbursement parity for certain types of telemedicine services and providing a lot more ability for providers to use telemedicine to manage a number of different chronic conditions. I think this is a watershed moment for telemedicine for sure. The question is what the reimbursement model for telemedicine is going to look like going forward, because historically speaking, both purchasers and providers have been reticent to use it. On the purchasing side, there is the concern that telemedicine will be used to potentially reduce utilization. On the provider side, the concern has been, well, telemedicine does not provide me as much of an information gathering viewpoint for making decisions. And also the reimbursement hasn't been there. 
So the question is, what does the reimbursement model need to look like to make telemedicine viable? But what's very clear is that many hospitals and health systems and medical groups are looking at telemedicine as a means of being able to provide service going forward, especially now that millions of Americans have had a taste of it during this crisis. Yeah, uh, I think um, my final question would be, do you have a, uh, a topic for next week's uh, go-to webcast, Christopher? Or is, is it changing daily? <laughs> yeah. It does change daily. Uh, we just released part six of our web conference series called Anatomy of an Outbreak. And we focused, as we have for the last several weeks, on a variety of different issues. But the big topic that we're going to be focused on next week is supplies, equipment, and testing, the keys to reopening the economy. So one of the biggest questions that we get is around what are the things that will need to be true for a number of different markets to reopen and for social distancing relaxation to happen? And that's what we're going to be discussing. I'll be interviewing my own colleague, Brandy Greenberg, who is one of Advisor Board's biggest experts on that. Okay. Um, thank you, Christopher. Anything else from you, Jonah? I guess I just have a, a question of sort of personal curiosity. An organization like Advisory Board uh, obviously is, is accustomed to, to advising hospitals on, on the day-to-day, uh, but when something like this happens, uh, all the rules go out the window. We, I mean, no one has really known how to proceed. So how do you make sure you can be there on the spot with the expertise um, and, and the guidance uh, to try to help these hospitals weather this? We've had to embrace the same technology that everyone else has. And we have embraced a lot of different means of being able to communicate with our members and with you all and uh, with uh, the press, the public, as much as, as much as anyone else. We really used a lot of technology to find different ways for our content to get out there. And we've made it a lot more available to anyone and everyone who wants to hear it because this issue is just way too important for us to keep it under lock and key. Christopher, is there anything uh, we haven't discussed yet or that hasn't come up that you think is important to, to get out to our audience, whether that's hospital tech folks or, or uh, hospital administrators? I think the one thing that I would just want to emphasize is have a plan for how you're going to regain as much of that pent up demand as possible. And I say that because some of that demand is likely to be gone and it's not coming back and it's going to take a while for a lot of providers to build up the funnel of new demand that will bring them back to normalcy. That means that in the short term, when it comes to competition, things are going to get real ugly real fast. So have a plan for what it takes to be able to capture as much pent up demand as you possibly can, because that's going to be the key to, to weathering the storm. All right. Good advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Christopher. Thank you, Sue, for uh, taking the lead on the interview today and Jeff for joining us. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. As a reminder, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere where you download podcasts. We'd love it if you could rate, subscribe, leave a review. Uh, we're a small podcast and we're still trying to grow. We'll include a link in the show notes to Christopher's go-to webcasts on Thursdays, so you can check those out. 
and hear more from him. Until next time, thanks for listening, and stay safe.